This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. What are gravitational waves and how can spinning stars known as pulsars help us detect them? This episode, University of Manchester astrophysicist Dr. Michael Keith discusses a discovery that's giving astronomers a new way of observing the universe. My name's Dr. Michael Keith. I work at the University of Manchester uh, studying pulsars and gravitational waves. Um, and my, yeah, my main research area is doing uh, pulsar astronomy with the Lovell Telescope. Awesome. I mean, yeah, pulsars and gravitational waves is sort of the, the two key things we're going to be talking about today, aren't they? Because we're sort of, at the time of recording, we're, we're off the back of a, a pretty big announcement last week involving gravitational waves. So, I mean, I think the obvious thing to do at the start of the podcast is to just try and try our best to, to sort of, can you sum up for, for, for me and indeed our listeners, what, what exactly are gravitational waves? Yeah. So, I mean, in the simplest sense, which of course is very difficult to, to visualize, gravitational waves are, are ripples in gravity. So, you know, in our everyday life, we see light, which is ripples in the electromagnetic field. Of course, to us as humans, and our brains, we don't think about this as being ripples in a field. As physicists, we spend our time thinking about this, but in a similar way that the electric field can, can have light, which we're quite happy to accept, gravitational field can accept these gravitational waves. And of course, Gravity, according to Einstein and general relativity, is really a distortion of space-time, the kind of sort of the underlying fabric of the universe. And so these gravitational waves act kind of like ripples in space-time. But yeah, but in some senses, it's, it's no different to just the amount of gravity going up and down in a, in a, in a periodic way. But it's, it's like nothing we experience on Earth, right? We have, we have no, ex, you know, no way of experiencing this in our everyday lives. Yes, I was sort of when I was trying to visualize it myself. I was sort of imagining. Can you sort of draw a parallel with like sound waves, like like the echo of two things colliding? Yeah, I think that's right. So, you know, just as yeah, like um, my voice travels to you as a as a wave through the air, um, the gravitational wave travels from you know across the universe, uh, sort of through as a wave through space time. And yeah, and the same, you know, and similarly how it, you know, the, the vibrations of the air affect your ear in order to hear me, um, the oscillations in space-time affect how we experience 
space and time, right? Objects can appear as if they're moving closer and further to each other or moving faster or slower, um, depending on exactly how you want to visualize your space time. But yeah, I think, I think you can draw an analogy in that way. I think most people will be aware of gravitational waves as being something that happens when, you know, for example, two, two massive objects like two black holes collide. How do astronomers actually detect those, those ripples based time from, from massive objects colliding? Right. So I think, actually, I think in a way that's a, a little bit of a misconception that the gravitational waves are caused by the collision. Gravitational waves are caused whenever you have, you know, massive objects. So by massive, I just mean objects that have mass, right? Going, you know, moving around each other, right? So whether you have, you know, even just, you know, in your back garden, waving a couple of tennis balls around, in theory, you're generating gravitational waves. Of course, it's immediately lost to the universe. It's, you know, nothing meaningful happens from that. But as soon as you have these massive things moving, you know, their, their gravity is a little bit of that energy is being radiated outwards. And of course, when you have something moving very, 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 very massive, moving very, very quickly as it's about to collide, you do, of course, get a massive spike of gravitational waves. Um, and that's what uh, the telescopes like LIGO are seeing, right? They're seeing these this big energetic spike in gravitational waves as these black holes or neutron stars go through the last moments of their uh, of their existence. So what can studying gravitational waves tell us about the universe? So, yeah, so gravitational waves, I mean, it's a bit like a sixth sense for astronomers. I mean, admittedly, in some ways, we only have one other sense, which is to look at the universe with our eyes, right? So we're doubling the number of senses we have to see the world, right? Um, up to now, you know, from the very first people looking at the stars, every piece of information that's come to us has come in the electromagnetic spectrum, either by literally looking with our eyes or using, you know, an optical telescope in space like Hubble, or now infrared telescopes in space like um, the JWST, um, or big radio telescopes like the Lovell Telescope and all these other telescopes around the world seeing in, in radio energies. But it's all coming on the same carrier, right? It's the same sense, just spread out. Now we have a, a really, really new way of looking at the universe, and it... it you know, currently, I think our sense, it's still at very early days and it's a very dull sense, but it is, it is totally new and it's, uh, it's giving us a parallel stream of information um, that tells us about, you know, directly about the masses of objects and things like that. And actually, in, you know, in astronomy, you can't go out and weigh, you can't go out and weigh a black hole, right? When we say we know this star is a certain mass, almost always that's, you know, according to our very good understanding of how stars work, when we look at this star, we think, well, you know, it's it has a certain properties and we compare it to our sun, we compare it to other things we do know the mass of. And therefore we say, well, it has this mass. But but actually it's, it's very hard to measure these masses. And so by directly seeing something about how the mass is behaving um, and what's happening to it as it's, as it's moving around in space, you know, we, we, we have this totally new way of learning about about all these objects, um, but particularly the very massive ones. Amazing. I mean, that sort of brings us on to talking about the discovery that you and your colleagues announced last last week. Well, yeah, I suppose I suppose for, first of all, just tell us about the discovery because as far as I understand it, it was it was regarding a sort of like a new type of gravitational waves that ha- that haven't been detected before. Right. Yeah. So so as with with sound or with or with electromagnetic light, you know, there's different 
pitches, right? You know, you might have a very high frequency sound, you might have a very, very low frequency sound. And, you know, in, in that analogy, what we've seen to date is a pretty high frequency sound, right? It's, it's this very it's this sort of chirp of the, um, of the black hole in its last moment, right? A very high frequency. What we've announced uh, last week was this discovery of these very, very low frequency gravitational waves. So in fact, these are gravitational waves that are washing over the Earth with a period of, uh, of years, right? And that means they have wavelengths of light years. So this is, this is sort of ultra-low frequency um, gravitational waves. And therefore, it's you know, looking at different types of objects. Um, what we think we're seeing is orbiting supermassive black holes. So these are billions of times the mass of the sun going around each other in the centers of distant galaxies. And, you know, and this, this, uh, these, gravita- these supermassive black holes are indeed stirring up you know, gravity and stirring up space-time, and, and the signal from that is, is radiating across our whole, you know, across our galaxy. And so it's almost like, you know, we're we're sort of in in um, a regime where we're seeing seeing things that affect our galaxy rather than just affecting, you know, a little a little detector. I mean, at, at, at the start of the the podcast, you you mentioned that your areas of expertise are pulsars and gravitational waves, and it was actually. It was actually pulsars that enabled you to to make this uh, discovery, wasn't it? The said detection, right? Exactly. So, pulsars are a very exotic kind of star, right? So these are these are the stars at the very end of their lives. They've gone through a supernova, and what's left is this core of ultra dense matter. It's the the core of the star has completely collapsed, and it's barely hanging on before. It collapses into a black hole. Um, its density is something similar to the density of a of an atom, right? And also, as it collapses, it ends up spinning very, very quickly through conservation of angular momentum. Um, it's something you might experience if you've ever, um, you know, watch watch an ice skater as they, you know, if they want to spin fast, they bring their arms in and it spins them up. Well, if you go from something the size of a star to something that's the size of Manchester, right? These things are only a few kilometers across you start spinning very, very quickly. And in fact, the ones that we're looking at, you know, they go around, uh, you know, 500 times a second, which I think is something like 30,000 RPM. You know, it's, it's the kind of thing if you put on your blender on top speed, that's, that's what this star is doing, right? So it's, it's a very, very exotic object. Now, why is that useful? Because it turns out if you get something that's very, very massive, very dense, and you spin it around very quickly, it can act a bit like a clock, right? It's... Um, it's got so much inertia and momentum that it will just keep spinning. And it's very hard to, to make it do anything other than spin very regularly. Um, and conveniently, these kind of stars also shoot out sort of jets of radio emission uh, along their magnetic poles. And this acts a bit like a lighthouse. So it sweeps across the Earth and we see a, a bright flash as it's sweeping across the Earth. And so we can count the ticks from this, these pulsars. And that gives us this clock. Okay, so why is a clock useful? Well, if what you're interested in is studying ripples in space-time, one of the things that rippling space-time does is it changes the rate at which clocks go. And so by looking at these pulsars, we can see, well, is the, is the clock of the pulsar changing? And if we see the clocks of the pulsars changing in a way that um, they're all kind of changing in, a, in some kind of characteristically similar way, we can kind of infer that, you know, either the universe is conspiring to, you know, to trick us, 
<laughs> or there's something, there's some, you know, underlying signal that is that is that is causing this correlated uh, correlated change in the clocks. And so, of course, our you know simplest hypothesis is that actually, yes, there's a gravitational wave passing over the Earth, and that is causing it to appear as if these clocks are, you know, these pulsars are talking to each other and, and you know, working together to give us uh, a signal. But actually, of course, it's it's the gravitational wave effect that we're measuring. And so this is, you know, it is, it is a very long-term experiment in order to do this. Um, you know, we're looking for waves that have periods of, of years, and so we need to observe the clocks for years. And in fact, for these experiments, you know, we've got 10, 15, 20, 25 years of data now. And so it's, it's only by looking over these very long timescales that we see the sort of signature of these gravitational waves showing up and we, that we can start to now at this point start to say, hey, I think we really have detected something and then go on to try and understand what it is that we're seeing. Yeah, that was one of the things I was going to ask you was if you take like a clock, in order to notice it changing, you've got to know what it should be. So do you have to observe the pulsars so that you can see what, what they, how, they, how they should be operating and then, and then, you, can, and then you can determine how they're changing? That, that's exactly right. And, if, and, and in fact, in some ways, that's, you know, that's where I fit into this collaboration personally is that, you know, my experience is trying to understand these pulsars um, and to be able to predict how they're going to behave. Now, it is true that unlike a, um, you know, unlike something like uh, LIGO, where you generate a signal, you know, you've made a signal and you're looking at how that signal gets affected. We have a natural signal. And so, yes, we don't know, you know, the pulses from the pulsar don't come with the time written on them, which is very inconvenient. Um, but what we can do is see how the the rate of the clocks changes or equivalent, you can think of it as the ticks coming a little bit earlier than you expected. And so, yes, by, by studying the pulsars, we can get a very good prediction of when they will arrive. In fact, you know, if I had a bit of time sitting on my computer, I could tell you when is the next pulse from this pulsar going to arrive to, you know, 100 nanoseconds or something, right? I can, you know, we can, we can absolutely know very precisely when these things are going to happen. Um, but, you know, I think it is fair to say, though, that, you know, when you're using these natural sources, they are quite complicated. And the physics of these pulsars is, ex is extremely complicated, right? Um, you know, these have the strongest electric fields and magnetic fields in the universe, um, a lot of the physics that we sort of assumptions that we rely on, you know, in our everyday life, certainly just don't make sense there. Right. Um, so it, it, it is not easy um, to, to be very confident about this stuff and predicting and, and modeling what are the kinds of things that a pulsar could do compared to what the gravitational wave could do is, is, is part of the game of this thing, right? Is how you actually go from, well, I just see a load of ticks from a clock to being able to say, well, this is, you know, now I understand what the pulse is doing and hence I now be able, can say, what is the gravitational wave signal doing? Awesome. I mean, just when you're talking about sort of uh, black holes at the, at the center of galaxies, as, as I understand it, um, these uh, supermassive black holes at the centers of galaxies, there's a sort of... Uh, isn't there sort of a uh, chicken and egg question? We don't know if if, the, if if galaxies form around the black holes or if the black holes form within already existing galaxies. And if, if, if that is indeed like a sort of an unsolved conundrum, are, are observations like these gonna, going, going to help um, sort of um, solve the mystery? 
Yeah, I think I think that's right. Um, certainly, you know, that an, an interesting thing is how do galaxies form, and how do these supermassive black holes form and grow so big? Um, it is a good question. Do the black holes start off massive, and indeed, as you say, you know, maybe galaxies grow around them, or um, galaxies grow in the same gravitational wells as them. Um, or is it all done by merging or is it done by, you know, you start with a small black hole and it, you know, lots of the galaxy, the matter in the galaxy ends up falling into the black hole. You know, I think there are a lot of questions and certainly there are a lot of people who spend a lot of time trying to make sense of all this stuff, right? And there are some, some really good theories and, and I think there's, you know, the, from electromagnetic radiation and looking, you know, things like Hubble and JWST where you can look back in time and see these early galaxies, you can, you can definitely start to say some things about, okay, how did galaxies form? Um, so I don't want to say that, you know, these are the results that will change uh, completely our understanding because I think that would be unfair to all these other wonderful experiments. Um, but certainly knowing there's, you know, this much uh, black hole, if, you know, the simplest thing that we can do is say roughly how many black holes are merging right now, right? What is the rate at which these black holes merge sort of through the universe? Um you know, is do we think that can explain all the growth of black holes? Can you know, if if every black hole merger is because a galaxy merged, right? I mean, where do these black holes come from to merge in the in the in the first place? They they were in galaxies, and the galaxies merged, and then the black holes sunk to the middle, and they go around each other, and then they eventually merge. You know, is that can that explain everything that we see, um, or other or there are other things? And I think at the moment, the sort of in some way, the surprise is that actually the the gravitational wave signal seems quite quite strong. Um, there seems to be lots of black hole merging going on. If if you know if if these results are to be completely believed, um, and that's that's kind of interesting, right? There's 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 you know this this process that we didn't really know whether it existed or not turns out to be you know quite important because it, clearly it's happening all the time. So I think I think it will. It is very early days, but I think it will you know. Be, start to be the, the, uh, a really important thing in, in our understanding of, of how galaxies form and black holes form. Um, actually, just, just coming back to the, um, the pulsars, from, from, from reading the story, I believe it, there were t- 25 pulsars were observed. Um, so how, 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 how did you actually decide which, which pulsars you were going to, to use for the, for the, for the survey? Right. Um, yeah, so within our European collaboration we observe uh, 25 pulsars actually i think we observe slightly more than that but we selected the 25 best ones to do our analysis um, and really that's what it comes down to it comes down to which are the stablest clocks which usually means the ones that are rotating the fastest um, there's also a particular kind of pulsar that is more stable than the typical pulsar you know we know something like 3000 pulsars now most of those are young and hot-headed and they do wild things right they you know they are in their their teenage youth of being a pulsar and there's all kinds of stuff going on the ones that we want for this experiment are you know, the very boring uh, old man of uh, you know just droning on through the universe um you know not doing anything interesting and so we select the, the pulsars that are um in some ways the least interesting from the pulsar point of view because they're they're the, they're the most stable clocks they're just going around uh doing their business um yeah 
so presumably in in the future you you know you you, you might want to follow follow up if, if possible with with like either i suppose either a brand new batch of pulsars or would you want to just add uh, add to add to the existing to the existing batch right so Absolutely, we want to look at more pulsars. And I think there's two things that are going to happen to make that happen, right? One is, um, you know, what, I, what I'm talking about at the moment is, is what we're doing within the European pulsar timing array. But there is also people who um, doing the same thing in the United States and uh, Canada, which is the Nanograd collaboration. And they, in fact, have got 60-something pulsars um, in their data set. It's a very, very nice data set. Um, there's a group in Australia with the Parkes telescope, um, and they've got something like 20 pulsars. Um, there's a group in China. There's a new telescope in South Africa called Meerkat that's just started taking these things. And you can't quite just add up all the pulsars because you know many of us, many of the best pulsars we're all looking at. Um, but we're going to bring together all those things, and I think that is really going to um, solidify this detection and help us to really understand what it is that we're seeing right now. But the main thing for the future is going to be this new telescope called the Square Kilometer Array, um, part of which is being built in Southern Africa. Um, and that, you know, one of the main science goals for that telescope is to, to do this experiment properly, right? To, to go from the ground up, build a very big radio telescope, um, it has the flexibility to do lots of, you know, wide frequency coverage and, you know, all, all, all the good stuff you need. It's got very good clocks inside and all this kind of thing. And that is going to really, um, it's, it, I think, what's going to be doing the real gravitational wave science, right? Right now, we're making a detection. We're saying something perhaps about the amount of signal that we're getting. But to really study this stuff, this new telescope, the Square Clarinet Array, um, that's that's going to be the thing that that I think will will change the game in terms of doing the actual science. And um, from from memory, isn't isn't that isn't that a sort of being headed by the University of Manchester? Because aren't the headquarters at at Jodrell Bank? So, the headquarters are at Jodrell Bank, um, but it is it is not run by the University of Manchester at all. Um, so yeah, the headquarters uh, of the Square Kilometre Array are at Jodrell um, because it is a kind of her- radio astronomy heritage site. I think. Um, and they have access to lots of people who know about radio astronomy there. Um, but this is a completely global thing. Uh, in fact, it is a um, it is a kind of international organization. So it's it's in some way not not even part of the UK in some some funny way, right? It's a it's a it's a, it's a bit like East, you know the European Space Agency in, in the sense that it's it's this kind of international organization that happens to be physically located near Manchester. Could we use the gravitational wave and pulsar technique to sort of learn learn about um, the supermassive black hole at the centre of, of our own galaxy? Is is, is that is that of, of interest? Do you think to, to radio astronomers? So I think we can certainly learn about perhaps the types of things that went into that galaxy, yeah, that black hole forming. I mean, fortunately for us, the black hole in the centre of our galaxy is actually quite a boring black hole. Um, it is not in a binary. It does not have massive jets of radiation coming off. You know, it is not doing anything wild. It's very convenient because, um, you know, you may not want to be in a galaxy where the black hole in the middle is doing completely uh, wild stuff. It's probably slightly unhealthy. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, we want to know about ourselves. I mean, we want to know about our galaxy. Um, and, you know, learning about 
her galaxy's form is is definitely on the cards for this stuff. And so, what presumably are, are you still working on the study? Is there still sort of data to go through and, and, and things to be learned, or, or or have you have you have you extracted all all the information from this this study and it's sort of on on onto the next one? Do you think? I think we're still working on this. I mean, I think as I said, the big thing is to bring together the international community, um, and you know, even from the side of uh, learning about the pulsars, I think we can, you know, I think we can do better on this stuff, right? Um, and again, by combining with our international colleagues, I think we will learn more um, about what the pulsars are doing, and that will help us to, you know, really focus the picture on the gravitational waves. But also, I think, you know, we really are um, at, at the beginning of this kind of new age of gravitational wave astronomy. Um, you know, we, we published, I think, on Thursday, we put out all these papers. And on Friday, there was something like 20 papers that people had written about what it all means. And of course, everyone seems to think what it all means is something different and wild. And, you know, um, you know, we're at this sort of period where, every, you know, now, now, the theorists can have fun trying to interpret what's going on with, with what's going on. And at some point, we'll work it out and we'll settle into a new picture of, of what this stuff is. Um, but yeah, right now, I think, you know, we're going to go back to the to the, the data and, and, you know, keep going on it because the data keeps coming. Um, and But now, you know, the new thing is the physicists and the, the theoretical people have something really to get their teeth into. I think up to now, it's it's all been a bit, it's all been a bit, if this, then maybe, and now there's, hey, we've got an actual thing. Let's go and see see if we can, you know, make sense of it. Fantastic. Well, Mike, thanks very much for, for coming on the podcast and speaking to me and sharing the, sharing the discovery. It's amazing. I mean, obviously, I and the rest of our listeners will be you know, waiting with bated breath to see see what, what happens. It's a, it seems like a really exciting field. It's just, just, just sort of starting to get going. It'll be really interesting to see what happens. But yeah, thanks, thanks for coming on the podcast and getting us excited about it. Okay, thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy Podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to Acast, iTunes or Spotify. Spotify.